morning again. The opening couple songs and just everything under my breath, I just kept going, let's go, right? There you go. Oh, man, I, it's good to be here with you. Um, it, it was interesting to think about it this week. It's been two full years since we've been able to gather together as a body in person, worshiping the reality of the resurrection, which is the greatest reality that we have. Uh, yeah, last year we had a, a pre-recorded uh, sermon, uh, and that was up, and me and Pastor Dennis worked on kind of getting that up, and we loaded that up as a YouTube premiere, uh, and that was available. So you could listen to it if you choose to do so. Uh, here's the reality about that time. Lots of us were already burnt out on YouTube, <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if we even did, but we couldn't actually gather together and worship the risen Savior. The reality of the resurrection last year was still true. Like we still had that, but as a body, as a family, as believers who are, who are calling out over the goodness of God, we just, we just couldn't do that last year. So I'm grateful as embodied souls, right? We're not just bodies and we're not just souls. I'm grateful as embodied souls that we can gather uh, together here uh, in person to declare the goodness of God. Uh, I'm not just grateful though, I'm also uh, as you can probably see, a, a little bit eager for God to move. I didn't have a Red Bull this morning, I promise. Uh, I'm hopeful and I'm eager. We have spent, uh, several of us, uh, spent about 40 days participating in Lent together, maybe for the very first time for some of you, which uh, was a time where we kind of took some things out of our life that were taking maybe too much time uh, and uh, attention and mental capacity from us, maybe even some things that, that we were worshiping more than God. We kind of set those aside in order to focus on and point our hearts towards Jesus. This was a huge process of what we call attention reorientation, a process of analyzing and readjusting where our worship is going, because where you put your attention is what is getting your worship. So we tried to put our worship on Jesus over 40 days before Easter in hopes that our hearts would more fully see the beauty of who he is together. Whether you participated in that or not, that that's kind of irrelevant right now at this point. My hope for all of us, I'll loop us all in the same, is that each and every one of us would sense the real, powerful, and present Jesus. Right? Not, not the real Jesus from the mental capacity only, but the present and powerful Jesus who wants to walk with us. So the goal for today isn't a hype job. It isn't a pep rally. It isn't anything like that. I'm not trying to take you through the full Easter gamut of emotions, right? That's normally in the pastor's playbook. You say something funny and you laugh and then you set tension and then maybe you make them cry and then you send them out in courage and then you go get eggs. That's not what we're doing. What we want to do here is we want to ask God that he would bring personal revival to us so that you wouldn't walk out the same way as you walked in. We spent 40 days asking for that, that God would meet us, strengthen us, walk with us, uh, and then maybe even in uncomfortable ways unleash us for his mission and his glory. Three things kind of collided uh, for a lot of us over the last uh, probably couple months, uh, Lent for the very first time. Uh, the book of 1 John, which I love, by the way. And then a lot of us have been listening to a series over the book of Revelation by Matt Chandler in the Village Church. I highly recommend that. But you put the three of those together and it does something to the heart. Uh, those three things have collided uh, to our heart. It just really wants to see God's kingdom come more fully. 
And we can kind of define a little bit of what that means. That means not just agree with God in mental capacity, but it, it means see dead souls come to life. It, it means see the hard spots of our heart come to life. It, it means seeing broken and weary people be comforted. It means learning to find better rest in things besides normal comfort, Netflix, TV, and alcohol. It means seeing our friends and our family and our neighbors set free from sin and us set free from sin and the Holy Spirit leading us to places that maybe we were just too distracted to go before. That's what we mean when we ask for the the kingdom of God to come more fully. God, come, work, and power so that your name would be hallowed and made much of. Kind of like the, the Lord's Prayer, your name be hallowed. We want to see his name be made much of and and us be changed because of that. So in many ways, the feeling right now is is this, awake, O sleeper. We have been for years kind of um, distracted, lulled to to sleep. We have been indifferent, and we've just kind of laid in the middle of whatever comforts that our hands can grasp a hold of. And now on Easter of 2021, I believe the call from God for us is not do better, try harder. It's get up, let's go. Awake, O sleeper, because your king is alive. And if your king is alive, that means something because it changes literally everything. I want to read from Hebrews 12. This is not the main text. It could have been. Um, But in light with that, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us, us throw off everything that hinders Everything and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And this text perfectly embodies, I believe, the stir that God is putting in our hearts when we say, wake up. It's, it's even from Ephesians, as Ephesians references the Old Testament book of Isaiah when it says, awake, us, O sleeper, and arise so that Christ can shine upon you. It's a call to see that there's probably more available to us in Christ that we have been living in and waiting in for the last several seasons of our life. It's a call maybe to leave the safety of the shallow waters of your comfort and your normal routine that you can control and move out into the deeper waters where you can't control all things, but you have to actually trust Jesus to follow him. That's what it means. That's what the draw is. Uh, That's why Hebrews 12 says the the same thing. In order to do that, though, in order to trust God, to walk into deeper waters, to see him work, you and I will have to cast off literally everything that hinders us. There are a million things that will slow you down, take your attention, take your heart, take your worship away from God, and we'll have to be the ones who learn to kind of take that off and run without that, including the sin that entangles us. The text is showing with vivid clarity that you and I have a real choice. Do we cast off what hinders us or do we sit in it and love it? Do we cast off the the sin that that is around us or do we pet it and enjoy it and pretend that it's not a problem? Do, Do we do that or do we actually mortify it and fight against it so that we can run the race, which is to participate in the call of living in the beauty of who Jesus is and then hear me, trusting him enough to show it to other people. We're really good at living in micro-beauties of who Jesus is when it's in safe spaces where we're not afraid. 
But what if we lived in the full beauty of who Jesus is the entire time? And then the world could see our Savior, not through our excellence, but through his beauty. The offer even tells us how is this done, because we have to ask questions like, is that possible? Is that plausible? The only way is by fixing your eyes on Jesus. Again, this is why Lent has been so good for some of us. Lent is just fixing your eyes. It's focusing your attention. It's that small of a detail that makes that big of a difference. By gazing upon Jesus intently, he helps us so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. You find yourself in that season? Are you weary now? Have you lost heart now? Are you distracted now? Jesus calls for you. Hey, come look at me. I'll help you walk out of that. He calls for that right this moment, right now, and his power of the resurrection is what makes it possible. Fix our eyes on Jesus so that he becomes more real, more than just agreeing with him or nodding our head at him or thinking he is a great example or just approving of him, but he becomes such a literal fixation of our lives that our mind and spirit deeply are changed from here on out because we see him more clearly. This is what it means to walk with Jesus. It's not boring. It's pretty wild, it's pretty crazy, and it's pretty beautiful. I don't know that we've done that for a while, though, but the call is let's go. Our play the rest of this time together is to just see a fresh view of Jesus, this risen king. We'll practice something a little bit. Like me and Demarcus meet about every week at my office on Tuesday. And I'm going to tell him, like, hey, man, you get way more amens than I do. And so, like, we're family talk. I don't like that. So... Uh, I want you to try a little bit, and maybe I'll just prod you for some of them until we learn, but we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, the risen king, who is not held by a grave. There's a great, great time. We're, we'll learn. He has not been restrained by death. He is alive. He holds the keys of death to in his hands. He has overcome the enemy. I pray this Jesus, this powerful Jesus, this alive Jesus who has overcome is the one that we become excited to follow. Wherever he leads us, and can I tell you that he'll lead you in places that will terrify you? That's why you'll need to look at him in order to keep going. Here's the hope. God's people awakened through being revived and deployed. God's people doing and participating in God's great work in creation. God's people changed by the reality of who Jesus is so much that they walk out in it because Christ is risen and our King will come again. Easter Sunday, more biblically known as Resurrection Sunday, uh, it's all about one theme. We can guess it. One theme only, and we're going to angle in a little bit differently, as you can already probably see, to, to some other Easter services. But I want to make sure that we hear clearly the theme and the focus and the drive of Easter. Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, came down from heaven. And following a sinless and altogether virtuous and altogether obedient life, he died a substitutionary and altogether sufficient and altogether saving death. And then he rose again on the third day. Again, that's a good time for, we're working, defeating death in a glorified but still human body. After a short time, he commissioned the church on what to do next, which is what we're talking about, arise and walk with him. And then he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, but not before promising to return. 
It says, one day I'll come, I will finish what I've started, I will wipe away every tear, I will make all things new, I'll fix everything that was broken in the fall, I will end sin, evil, injustice, unrighteousness forever. This king has promised to come and return and rule, and not like other powers around us, he will rule in a righteous way with a righteous hand. Easter Sunday is... It's all about the hinge point of that story being true. Because if it's not true, we are fools. Right? It's historical fact that that a man named Jesus of Nazareth lived. It's historical documented fact outside of even our Bible that he stirred up the religious Jewish leaders so much that it caused Rome to go, what's going on here? It's a historical fact that he claimed to be God and taught about a coming kingdom. It's historical fact that he gathered crowds. It's historical fact that he performed miracles and people claimed to have seen them. And in, in, in these rural areas, three, four, five thousand and more people begin to follow Jesus when there's no internet to, to read tweet what he was doing. Something happened. None of that's up for debate. Even non-Christians have documented, Josephus being probably one of the most famous for over 2,000 years, this man named Jesus and the insane effects of what he was doing. That's why it's kind of laughable when people are like, I don't, I don't even believe that Jesus is a real person. They're like, well, you, sir, are not smart. It's historical. The question has never been Is Jesus a man who lived? That's not the question. The question is solely, is Jesus alive? There is no other question. Because if he's not, he was a lunatic and a liar, and and like we've drank some weird Kool-Aid. I'll show my age just a little bit. Anyone remember Y2K? There you go. In the 90s, right, there's a growing fear. The world's going to collapse. Right? When we arrive at 2000, all the computers would essentially freeze, the world would stop, uh, and, and there's this weird theory, I don't, I don't get it all, but there's date stamps and stuff like that. When it hits the date stamp of 2000, computers are just going to die, and, and the whole world, banks and stocks and shipping and sales and commerce are all going to just be gone because they're all ran by computer systems, and everything will fall apart. So on December 31st of 1999, at 11.59, if you stayed up that late, everyone took a collective gasp. (gasps) And as the calendar shifted into 2000, literally nothing happened. No computer failure, no gridlock, no banking collapse. Everything was fine, right? Just lots of believers in Y2K ended up with a lot of food stored in in their house. Do you wonder, are they smarter than us? We stockpiled TP, they stockpiled food. We have this chronological snobbery where we think we're smarter than people before us, but I think they had us there. I bring this up because I think it helps us in relation to the cross of Christ. There was indeed real documented historical worry about this problem called Y2K. It was real. There was indeed books, articles, uh, news stuff everywhere uh, devoted to it. And there were indeed tons of people who stockpiled resources because they were terrified. But Y2K came and then it went and the whole deal ended up being fiction because it was dead because nothing happened. It didn't move past that. So because of that, what do we do in relation to Y2K now? Nothing. Because it doesn't matter. See, 
There's no reason to live with that in mind anymore because it proved to be dead. But Jesus, on the other hand, after the cross, after being buried in a tomb, after having a great stone rolled in front of his tomb, which a lot of people right now like to think after the Roman cross, which is the most brutal thing that you could ever have done, that he had enough energy to just push the rock away. After the third day with that rock rolled in front of the tomb, Jesus came out. Death took him. It swallowed him. And yet Christ, hear this, with the same power that's in you. Do you believe that? The same power that's in you, if you follow him, rose from the grave, ripped death's power away. That's, that's why I love the lyrics. He has cheated death and seated us above the fall. If I could sing it, I would do it, but I can't. Death couldn't hold him. Christ's day came on the cross, and yet the cross isn't the defining only reality about Jesus because it wasn't his end. If this is true, if that's what we believe and accept as truth, then this single reality that Christ has defeated, what no other person has ever defeated, is the single reality that we must live by because he offers salvation through it. I want to dig into the specifics a little bit today about why King Jesus being alive, why he, him not being a fictional character or just some moral example uh, that, that's powerful, why it's a reality that should kind of turn our lives upside down and completely reorient things in our lives. Because I think there's a valid question, like when we get around Easter, you're like, he's alive. What do I do with that? The Bible tells you what to do with that. We're going to look to Hebrews 2 to read about what it means that he's alive, why that's good news, why we should bask in that and what that does for us. So there's going to be some terminology in this text, just super fast. We'll line it out to make sure we understand. When the text says children, it's talking about humanity. That's us. Okay. When it says he, that's Jesus. When it talks about devil, God, and angels, well, they're They're their own character, right? You can figure that one out. But humanity is going to be children. So Hebrews 2, verse 14 through 18. Since therefore the children, humanity, share in flesh and blood, and he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he may destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. That's a good line. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This text, again, opens up talking about children, that's humanity, and how Jesus took on flesh so that he could be like them when he came, right? He took on flesh. This is the incarnation. This is what we celebrate for Christmas, that Christ, the eternal son, put on human form to come into our story. That part of the story is massive as well. If we lose it, we lose it all. God did not come down as the, or Jesus did not come down as the second person of the Trinity and just wear a costume of humanity. He didn't mask around as, as pseudo-human. 
right? He, he didn't just have an outfit. He didn't pretend to be human. He took on flesh just like you and I, hands, bones, blood, ligaments. He had all of that just like us. Again, we may think, well, great, what does that mean? Why is that so important? Because we as humans could only be served and helped if our substitute was a human, right? He could only substitute for us in the places that we as humans have failed and discharged the debt that we owed because of our sin. He could only do that if he took on flesh to be human like us. If his life and his death and the cross and the resurrection would have happened without him becoming human, they would all be literally meaningless to us because they'd be worthless to help us. He had to take on flesh to be like us, to stand in our place. If he was anything but human, we would have no help. We would have no hope. That's why verse 17 says that he had to be made like his brother's humanity in every respect. So that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God for us. So in the text, there's a couple things that we're going to pull out in order that we have to glean from here. The first is that Jesus came fully as a human being. We just set out the why. The second is this, Jesus came to die. Sit in that. That's why he came. He clothed himself in flesh and blood, which if you're wondering, that's a downgrade. You can be God or you can be He had it better. He took the downgrade to walk a path that led to death, the most horrible death that you could possibly die, death on a Roman cross. Again, why did God have to become flesh? Well, God cannot die, but the God-man can. And he came to die, and he did die for you. We have to wrestle with that, because what do we do? We do our best to escape death, to put it off. Right, all, all the richest crazies, they're, 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 they're investing in these areas. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get the fountain of youth and I'm never going to die. Yeah, you are, buddy. We do everything we can to try and escape the reckoning day of death over us as if we'll be the one who got out. And yet Jesus came not avoiding death, not dying death, and also not just kind of like pretending that it's not there. Death was literally why he came into existence as a human being. Jesus came and marched towards death. We run terrified. He walked into it. He came down willingly to endure the worst version of death possible. We don't have time to kind of dig into that. Why was it a Roman cross? Because there's nothing more disturbing that happened there. We put crosses on shirts in the front of the churches, and we, and we think, oh, that's sweet. It is a horrific and shameful and disturbing thing to die on a cross. He came for that. Then personalize that. He came for that for you. That's what we need to see. The king who we follow is the lion and the lamb who didn't run from suffering but ran towards it in order to free you from the burden of your sin and impending death. We focus largely on the incarnation and Christ's death so far, but it is Easter, right? So we need to look at the resurrection. The third thing the text shows us through his death or by means of dying is that Jesus destroyed, the text says, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. 
This word destroyed in the original language doesn't mean that he annihilated the devil. It means that he rendered him powerless, uh, dethroned him, nullified, took all of his capacity away. So the, the power that the enemy had in death, Jesus stole it from him. I've destroyed your power. What the text is saying is that Jesus, through his substitutionary death, has broken the hold which Satan has on those who trust and follow Jesus. Has he broken the hold of death on everyone? No. He has broken the hold of death on the ones who follow him. He has terminated and overcome Satan's influence over us concerning death. Where once we were enslaved, guys, think of your worry your anxiety, your health concerns, your planning for your parents and your family and your 401k and your life plan. How much terror and worry do we have about long-term plans? Part of that is because we do not truly believe that Jesus stole the power away from Satan. We are still in some ways controlled by and enslaved by a fear of death. The text says, where, now, where once you were enslaved to the fear of death, now you're free, though. Consider how different that is to the popular reasons that people postulate on why Jesus came. Jesus did not come to make us some, like, absorbed oneness thing. He didn't do that. Jesus didn't come to give us a human example. He, he didn't come to, to just be an ethical model. He definitely didn't come to form a political party. Jesus didn't come to form one path of many to whatever version of God that you want to go to. Christ was born and lived as a human being in order to die, and that was the death that we deserve to die, thereby setting us free from Satan's tyranny. Do you know why Jesus came? Only for this. I've come to die. My reign is brought in and solidified through my blood and my death. You may think again, okay, well, what does Satan held the power of death really even mean? Can we go deeper into that? Yes, we can. The text is saying that Satan has the power to take your, it isn't saying that Satan has the power to take your life from you. We learned that in the book of Job. His, his ability is, is restrained in certain parameters. He cannot kill you, but The power that Satan exerts over death resides in his ability to instill fear in our hearts over and over and over again. What it means is he terrifies human beings with the prospect of dying. And when he does this, what does it do? It takes your life from you by turning what is meant to be joyful and and filled with peace into misery and despair. He will haunt you over and over and over again to steal even the fruit of your faith, which should be peace. Look at it this way. If you believe that God is not real, and we go into the, the conversation, but I don't have time for that, of whether the Bible even says that's possible. But, but if you're going to live out an athe- atheistic mindset, and, and you believe that there is no God, and we're just, uh, we're just matter, and we're chromosomes, and we're all this stuff, and we're just kind of moving around and kind of doing the thing, well, then you have to reckon every single day of your life that you may, you may, if cancer doesn't get you first, get 70 or 80 years. And then you are nothing. 
not you get nothing, you're gone, vanished, absolutely nothing. Why do you think we invent these things in culture that, oh, my, my dead relative, they float around and they watch me? No, no, we're trying to escape what death does. If there is no God, when someone dies, there's nothing. What does this mean? It means that you're forced to get every single thing that you can now and as fast as you can because you do not know when you'll die. And what does that cause? When life gets derailed, when things go sideways, when a plan doesn't go the way that you want because you feel the overwhelming anxiety of my one life is slipping away and I'm not going to get another chance, it crushes you. Friends, hear me for a second. I think that most of us would not say that we believe that. But is it how we live? With a religious flair to our speech and some religiosity about our habits, but a heart that exists much like an atheist, terrified, anxious, scared, and always worried over death. And if that's you, it's been me before. Jesus wants to free you from that. He goes, I took the power over death. You shouldn't have to be scared of that anymore. Again, Hebrews says this isn't the case for those who believe in Jesus. For those who follow him and submit to him as their king and their savior, for them, Jesus has defeated death through his death and resurrection. Death, because of this, has been unmasked. It's lost the fullness of its sting. Does it hurt still? Yes. Yes. but not nearly the way that it would. Does this mean that we get all weird and we just like walk into bullets and we try and die and walk on the highway and like whatever, take me? No, probably not. It just means that we are no longer slaves to the fear of death because Jesus is unmasked it. We have family members and we have plans and we want to walk in those. So we're not gluttons to die. But we can walk out of slavery of fear of death. Just, we either believe this stuff or we don't. There is no middle ground. Right now in culture, people are trying to play with orthodoxy to reinvent things. You can't do that. So if this sounds too far out there, too religious, too much, you're just too fired up for Easter, please know that this isn't some radicalization of the Christian faith. This is Christianity, that you have a living hope. This is normal faith. Again, do we desire to die? No. But when we do, our hope is Jesus will meet us there. We can pass from this life into the next. And what does that mean? When death is fully unmasked, you're in my sin, our shame, our our defeat personally, all the things that just terrorize us, those are gone. Now you can live in joy and freedom knowing that death has been unmasked because you can look death squarely in the face and say, I don't want to meet you today, but if I do... You're just a transition from this lowly body into glory. We'll have glorified bodies that don't get sick and depressed and hurt 
Don't have to take off the winter weight every year, I hope. A glorified body, feeding off of Christ, healthy and flourishing. I'm hoping forever young as well. With a six-pack would be great. On the abs, clarify. When we get there, we'll live with our king forever, our king that is not dead. There's so many songs I wanted to sing today, limited time. That's why I love the, the lyrics, death has no hold over me because your grace holds that ground. It embodies this well. We were once rocked at the thought of death, but now I know that even if it comes, Jesus beat it. Friends, I know that there's, there, there's a sincerity thing in here going like, well, hey man, if you have terminal cancer, are you still going to believe that? I hope so. I hope so. But when death comes, Jesus will be waiting there because death is in the end. Our king will be waiting. And the hope is that he'll say, well done. Not well done, you watched 18 million hours of Netflix. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You ran the race. It was bumpy for a while, but you got up and you ran. See, this is all about a true biblical hope and guys, we need it. Right now, we sense it, right? We're in our generation's first pandemic, hopefully only. We've suffered in isolation. We've suffered in fear. We, we've suffered in having to make decisions that we don't want to make. We've suffered in not knowing what's coming next. We've suffered in, in watching the news over and over and over, and our hearts are crushed because we can't take in what's happening around us. We've suffered in the middle of political and racial and moral and ideological and theological wars around us that are vile and horrific. We've lost count of mass shootings and of scandals and of friends that have walked away all in the middle of a culture of outrage and anger. The author in this text is saying, when we die, if nothing else, we understand you leave that behind. That will be a distant memory. That, that's what he will wipe every, every tear away. That's what it's starting to help us understand. That pain will not be anymore because Jesus has defeated death. We don't have to be scared of it. Do we look for it? No, but if we go there, so be it. Death is the door to a kingdom that does not hurt like this. We'll begin to wind down. At least I have that in my notes. Maybe not. How did Jesus' death break Satan's grip? I'm a cynic. So when someone says something, I'm always like, prove it. How? Yeah, right. Well, it tells us. The answer is in verse 17. Uh, there we see that Jesus Christ conquered Satan and broke his power over death and set free those who trust in him by dying a death in which the wrath of God against sin was satisfied. That's why those words are beautiful on the cross. It is finished. The wrath of God is fully satisfied. That means there is no more for you. That's what it meant by propitiation in the text. So while some try and deny the existence of God, uh, or maybe we just live as if he is not really real, many others know that he exists, and they'll spend a lot of their life actually worried that when death comes, that we're going to have a problem. Because at death, many know 
The Bible would say all know that there's a creator. At death, we know that the sins that we have committed, we will have to face. And the world fears death because they fear the day that they will stand in front of God terrified, knowing that there's a holy God on a day of reckoning that they will stand not holy in front of him. For that person, they feel the guilt of their shame But yet, just the world's grip is still too strong on them for them to humble themselves and turn to the Lord for pardon. For that person, death is terrifying. Why? Because death is the doorway to wrath. There's two options. Death to nothingness, death to wrath. Two options if you're not with Jesus. What does this look like? And I'll just be really honest as I thought about this. In my college years, I was a sinful man. Walking after every, everything my flesh wanted, I was a sinful man, not following Jesus. And I remember clearly laying in bed more than one night going, if you die, you are in so much trouble. Why? There's a holy God and me and him are not okay. Because I lived in rebellion against him, knowing that it wasn't okay, but still not caring enough to be able to walk away. For believers, though, the wrath of God has been satisfied through Christ. So we not only don't think death is the end, we're not worried that upon death we'll meet an angry, screaming, red-faced, wrathful God. Instead, we'll stand in front of an infinitely holy God, clean and accepted. A loving father will go, welcome, I built a house with many rooms, you've got one, come on in. It's been a long road, but... We're here. See, Jesus came and through his death, this is what he accomplished for those who believe. Easter is the day that we celebrate that his promises were actually true over us when we celebrate that on the third day he walked out of the tomb. In that we're celebrating that we stand here and he stands true and our greatest need is met because our greatest foe is defeated. Sin, death, and Satan have been forever conquered by Jesus for you if you follow him. Hear me, we are winding down. For so long, guys, believers, including us, we've been distracted, we have been lulled to sleep, we have been incapacitated by the world. So distracted that the power of God is not with us, So then we are terrified, terrified of being rejected, terrified of being disliked, terrifying of being that guy, terrified that the the, the church numbers are going down, terrified that the culture is telling us that our version of truth is wrong, terrified that we're on the wrong side of history, terrified that we're intolerant, terrified that we're uh, irrelevant, terrified of all things in the world. And so we began walking on our heels, nervous, worried, anxious, in doubt, just waiting for for, for someone to to, to throw a haymaker at us, and we're terrified about it. Easter screams to us in the middle of that, do you not know that your king is alive? His promises are true. Death has been defeated. Your sin has been defeated His church will not die. His gospel will not become untrue. Why are you so afraid when you should rejoice? Look what he has won. 
Does that mean we're gluttons for punishment? No. But our king is with us, even when we find it. Romans 8.34 says this. Who then is the one who condemns you? No one. Who has the power to condemn you in front of God? No one. Can your family, can your job, can your spouse, can your kids, can a broken business, can a broken reputation, can broken self, can that condemn you? No. That's why we rejoice. Death and its power have no hold on you. God no longer has any wrath for you because Jesus paid it all. In the courtroom of your life, it'll be like this. Who brings charges against them? And there will be silence. No one. Why? Because you're clean and you're loved and you are accepted in Jesus. Church, we know the ending of the story, and this is what I want to revive in us. It's not unsure. We know the ending. The ending is that our king, the one who is alive, will come back riding a white horse and radiant, and he will come back to make a final war against the enemy and completely put him in his place forever. He did not stay in the grave. He also didn't walk away in the cosmos going, I don't care about them anymore. He will come back. He is alive. He wants to walk with you as your king in the here and now. And he's even sent the Holy Spirit to help that be able to happen so that you can follow him. So Easter is a fresh invitation to follow the risen king into his battle that the victory is already secure. I just want to be as honest as I can. Following your king will lead you to places that you would not go on your own. Following your king will cause relationships to break down. Causing your king, following your king will cause things that you want to do in life not be able to happen at times. But our eyes are fixed on him, so where else are we going to go? See, this is what faith looks like. Christ is alive. The prevailing thing many pastors I've talked to all over is the church in the West has just been asleep. That's us. But Christ is alive, and here's his beck and call. I want to lead you. Do you really want to follow now? And what we can do It's just kind of answer that question. Do I want to walk out after him like he's alive, or do I want to stay asleep, afraid, and distracted, and lulled into my comforts? Because Christ is calling, and we have a choice of what we want to do. Live fearlessly and bold for the one who's already warred and won. Or just appease our worry by diving into every comfort we can find. Band, you guys can come back up. Here's the play. I want want to ask you this, and I'll front load it. I'm not going to pull a switcheroo and make you come up or anything like that, but 
I'm going to go back to my roots. I'm going to have you bow your head and just listen for a second. I'm going to give you a chance to respond. Because like there is power in confession, there's power in also acknowledging and asking for what you need. So I don't want to walk away from Easter without asking our king to walk and lead us more if that's what we need. So I'll ask first, if this King Jesus, this version of a powerful Savior who has warred for you and accepts you in your darkness and has paid for your sin without you earning it, if it is someone that you have never followed or never known, but you want to, I want to be able to pray for you. Maybe you've been with us at church forever and the spirit would just open up the eyes of your heart to know like, hey man, I haven't been following him and I want to, I do not want to walk away from here without giving you a moment to walk away knowing that that king is your king and not just their king. If you feel the spirit drawing you, you're saying, I want to follow that king today. I'll just ask you to raise your hand and I want to pray with you. Then we'll ask this. Have you lived far too afraid? Worried, distracted, on your heels, distant, disengaged. And you want to be able to follow your king more, but just don't know how to get there. You want to know what it means to trust him. To not spend the next three years lived like the last three. For your faith to come alive. I want to ask you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Before you leave, before you leave. Hands are low, but there is. I'm going to press further. Does your heart enjoy the idea of being revived in Christ the same way it's been, or does it yearn for more? So that's you. I want to pray for you before you leave today. I can ask you to come up. I'm just going to pray corporately. I'll tell you this. If you don't respond, you can still ask the Lord for help with it as we worship. I worry at times that we are so reformed that we don't ask. I think there's power in asking and praying. So have you stand with me. We'll pray before we worship. In communion today, what we're going to do is this. We're going to play two songs, and then we're going to take together. So I'd ask you to kind of wait, and we'll take communion at the same time. There's the cups in the front. If you need to go grab one, you have two songs for time to do that. Let's pray. There were several of you who rose your hands, who responded that they don't want to walk out like they came in. They want to walk deeper in their relationship with God. They want to be revived. So pray for that now.
Father, we ask for your help. Holy Spirit, I pray in these moments that perceive that you break down our fear. They begin to work in our anxiety that we see a big, powerful, present Jesus that is with us. God, I pray for those who feel alone, feel distant, wondering the times if you're even real. I pray that you would move close. Holy Spirit, you make a home in our heart for Jesus so that we can sense and walk with him. So I pray for the people who rose their hands, for every person in here, that we would sense a real Savior really walking, really leaving, really living and really empowering us. Would you make it so? Lord, I continue to pray that you would pour out revival. May we see with more clarity that Jesus, you are heaven. You are the gift. You're not the way to the gift, you are the gift. May we see that more clearly. May we feed off of that. May we be strengthened by that. Lord, I pray that you begin to adjust our attention and our thoughts and what we're worshiping so the fact that we can see you and be strengthened by you more. Oh God, revive your people. Jesus, thank you for your kindness. You took our greatest fear and you unmasked it. You took our greatest shame and you covered it. We just slow down our hearts to say thank you. You're good, you're gracious. All other pursuits, all other things do not compare to you. I pray that you take away our shame. I pray that you take away what hinders us. But I pray that you give us freedom from the sins that we still romance so that we can walk with you. We pray that in your holy Stand with me. We'll play a couple songs again. We'll take communion together after two songs. So grab a cup if you want, and then I'll come and lead us in that. I'll just encourage you. God is working and reviving in your heart. One of the best places to flesh that out is through worship. Sing to your king who is good, who has come and has risen and has come again. And I pray, especially guys who do it, don't hide behind you're not a singer. Worship your king and let him work on your heart. I promise you he will.